Welcome to the Special Interest Podcast. I'm Alex. And I'm Carly. We are the creators and hosts. As two women who received late autism diagnoses, we are passionate about educating, celebrating, and highlighting autistic identities. This life-changing diagnosis opened a whole new world to us both. Our special interests have been so important in our journey of self-discovery through our autism diagnosis. Special interests provide autistics with an element of regulation, comfort, and support. We want to provide a platform where others can share the joy of their special interests. Our podcast aims to represent diverse autistic identities through an inclusive community where autistic voices are valued, validated, and seen. We're excited for you to join us on our journey of learning and story sharing. Join us weekly as we share about our own experiences and other autistic stories. Welcome back to the Special Interest Pod, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we have a very special guest. So we'd like to welcome Zoe. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to be part of the show because I've, I've loved listening to this show for such a long time. Awesome. Thanks so much, Zoe. We're so excited to have you. How have you been, Zoe? How are you doing today? I am doing great. I, um, yeah, I was really looking forward to being on here. You know, I absolutely love talking about my special interests. So I woke up this morning and I was like, here we go. <laughs> awesome. We just finished our dance party. So we're all ready to go. <laughs> Tell us about yourself, Zoe. Sure. So I am um, an autistic woman um, and uh, not 100% confirmed with the ADHD, but I mean, come on, you know. Um, I, uh, have been in like disability rights activism for a while, and then I decided to become a therapist. Um, and so, uh, after becoming a therapist, I was really looking for a job working with my fellow autistic people, always been my passion, you know, um, I'm also an autism researcher and really, really like passionate about the community. Um, but I felt like all the jobs I was finding were just stuff that like, I don't want, like the values of my employer are not my values when it comes to autism, right? You know, a lot of like uh, agencies or practices that I was like, yeah, that's a little ableist and I'm not cool with that. Um, I think one of the great things about being autistic is that a lot of us have very clear sense of justice and morals and we stick by them. <laughs> something I always uh, feel very like proud of the autistic community for. So I was like, well, I'll just create my own private practice where I can kind of do my own thing and uh, have the impact on, on other people and on the world that I want to have. Um, so I now have a private practice where I specialize in empowering neurodivergent people. Most of my clients are autistic or they have ADHD or both. Um, and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome. You just kind of made your career your own. 
Yeah, one of the many benefits of uh, having just a lifelong difficulty with authority. <laughs> it really catalyzes you to kind of do your own thing. <laughs> that is really cool. What brought you to learning about autism? Is there anything that sparked it? Or like, how old were you when you first started learning about it? So, you know, ever since I was a small child, I was like, I am really weird. <laughs> I I knew I was experiencing the world very differently than other people. And um, it got a lot of feedback via bullying about that, you know, just felt very different. Um, I happened to get this job when I was like 14 at a day camp run by my local ARC. They employed a 14 year old girl. <laughs> with no training whatsoever and they were like have at it and um so I was you know I was there with a bunch of other 14 year olds we knew nothing um about autism or you know intellectual disabilities or anything like that but I just felt like this instant connection and kinship with the autistic kids there and I was like I don't really know why I am so able to predict kind of what they need and to connect with them. But I know that like, when I am with autistic people, I feel at home. I feel safe and happy. And I always want to feel this way. So uh, that's where I kind of got started wanting to work with autistic folks. And then as I got older, um, and was like learning more about what autism really was, um, and was in therapy myself, this is when I found out, oh, you know, the reason why you're like vibing so well is that you're part of the community. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I just learned about, um, the whole idea of double empathy Yes, and it just, it makes so much sense. Yeah. How did you start researching attachment theory and how it related to your experiences or the experience of the people around you. Yeah. So for, for those folks who are not familiar with attachment theory, um, it's this theory that, you know, came about in the 1980s. Um, one of the most like famous studies is the study where they had a bunch of, um, children who are about like, you know, 16, 18 months um, in a room with their mom, and then their mom would leave the room and um, come back, and they'd be left with a stranger, etc. And um, they studied like the reactions of these children to having their mom leave the room. And from there, they kind of realized that these children fell into like four attachment styles, one was secure, where when their mom left, they were upset. And when their mom came back, she would calm them right down. And they they kind of had that good bond. And then there were kids who were avoidant, who uh, when their mom left, they like didn't care. And when their mom came back, they didn't care. Um, and then their kids were anxious, where when their mom left, they were sobbing. And when their mom came back, they were still sobbing. And they they're pretty inconsolable. And then there were kids who were like fearful avoidant. And that would be a mixture of like anxious and avoidant, you know, they had sort of like a very sort of dysregulated, disordered response. Um, so I first learned about that and I found it really fascinating because it just something, you know, sometimes you just have this like 
interest and it just really like sparks your brain you know it's that feeling of just like wow like that's fascinating and I was really intrigued by how it um really like impacted people as adults like how this thing that you know you don't even remember the first like year or so of your life and yet your body like holds this information forever and the way that you kind of attach to your primary caregiver in your first year impacts you your whole life and I was like whoa what a mind f like what a fascinating thing um and then you know I'm working with autistic clients and I'm noticing that there's like the majority of my clients have like a disordered an insecure attachment style right and, you know, I've worked also with neurotypical people before. Um, I've had like internships and stuff in grad school with neurotypical people. And yeah, some of them had insecure attachment styles, but nowhere near as many as my uh, autistic clients. Um, and that kind of got me really interested. Um, as like an autism researcher, really like the majority of research out there about autism does not look at our lived experience or how to make our lives better. A lot of the research out there is eugenics. It's like how to get rid of autism. And then, you know, a lot of it is also just the autistic community are not shareholders or decision makers in the research. The questions being asked are not questions that benefit us. Usually studies are really looking at how can we make autistic people less of a pain in the ass to neurotypical people. Only in the past few years have autistic researchers really been involved in the research process and, you know, neurotypical allies have invited autistic people to give their perspectives on research. So this is a long-winded way of saying that like sometimes you can ask a basic question about autism in the autistic community and there's no answer. Nobody has nobody has asked that question about us before, which is exciting because it's a little bit like um you feel like as a researcher you're like in this place of of pioneering <laughs> where it's like simultaneously like what the fuck like how could excuse my language how could nobody have asked that question before. And then also, great, now I get to ask it because I'm really curious. Um, there is not a lot of information about autism and attachment style. Many of the things that we see as autistic traits also overlap with attachment insecurity. And when I work with autistic clients, you know, I'm like helping them, I'm using like attachment therapies to help them. And I'm like, okay, so the fact that like this attachment therapy is working, <laughs> right? That's a little indicative of, of maybe they're just being an attachment issue. And I think that that would make a ton of sense because a lot of attachment stuff happens when your parent can't attune to your feelings. They don't know what the problem is. And if you have a neurotypical parent with an autistic baby, they're not going to understand 
why this baby is so adverse to sensory issues, you know, why there's all these, you know, uh, dysregulation happening. Um, and it's been proven in studies that like, it's easier for autistic people to attach to autistic family members than it is neurotypical family members. But also, you know, even if you have like an autistic parent, um, and that parent becomes like really overwhelmed because parenting is really overwhelming and maybe they were never even diagnosed. Maybe they don't have the right therapeutic supports. They might also not be a parent who can attune to you, even though you are the same neurotype. Um, so, you know, like, of course, of course, this group of people who are characterized by not having like social connection of course yeah they would have attachment issues you know but it's like I don't know people are not looking at it that way yet it's awesome that you can pave the way and with your research hopefully more people are willing to look at that is there a way that we can see your research I'm like very curious now to learn more about it myself um do you like produce articles or how can we learn more about that? So um, presently I've published one study in the journal called Autism and that study is not actually looking at attachment theory. It is however looking at your attachment to your therapist. So that study looks at autistic adults perceptions of bias from their therapist and how it impacts their self-esteem. Um, and I'm publishing a lot of research about that currently, you know, there's like a year lag always in the uh, research publishing sort of field. Um, and currently I am like conducting research on attachment and autism. So probably that stuff is not going to be like published in journals for like a, two years. <laughs> However, you can sort of follow me on like TikTok or Instagram. And that's where I produce a lot of like short videos that are probably easier to digest information from in the, you know, in the first place. And, you know, I talk a lot about things like attachment um, on that platform. So that might actually be a better way of kind of getting some education about it. And what's the handle so we could find you there? It's Zoe Durazdi Counseling. My name is so hard to spell. It's Z-O-E. D-A-R-A-Z-S-D-I, very Eastern European. We will also include that in our little information box below and share it out with all of our listeners as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's been, you know, I've just kind of been on that platform recently. Um, really new for me, but I uh, am always really like, my heart is warmed by the other like autistic individuals on that platform and the community at large. It's really nice to see. Nice to see everybody coming out, <laughs> and, like you know, living with pride and supporting each other. I love that. Yeah. It's uh, the community is amazing and I'm so grateful for it. Um, but I just wanted to go back to, double empathy because it seems like your research kind of has to do with that and it's a topic that I just learned about and I found so much comfort in it because it's an explanation for why 
I don't feel accepted in some groups. And I was wondering if um, you could talk more on that as it relates to your research. Sure. So the double empathy problem, um, uh, Dr. Milton put this sort of landmark article out about it in um, 2012. You can kind of look that up. Um, but essentially the concept is that autistic people and not autistic people have to meet halfway in communication. So the general standard, the idea is that autistic people are just so inept at communicating. And I mean, when you see autistic people in the media, right, that's often like the characterization. That's like the joke sort of, right? Um, is like, oh, oh, you didn't know that? Like very condescending. Um, and, you know, it's based on this idea that like neurotypical communication patterns are inherently superior just because they're like the majority norm or just because autistic people are considered they're defined as like defunct versions of a regular person, quote unquote. Like when you look at like the DSM, uh, the you know big sort of book of mental health diagnoses, um, and you look at like a lot of the way that the mental health field looks at autistic people, we are defined only by the ways in which we are not as good in their view as a normal person. Deficits, that's what we're viewed through. Um, and so then the therapies that are out there, the attitudes that are out there are that we have to like do all these things, mask and, uh, you know, learn these neurotypical social rules of which there are thousands and none of them are intuitive to us. And we have to, you know, basically make every effort to communicate with neurotypical people on their standards. The double empathy problem says, you know, is there anything actually inherently superior about neurotypical communication standards? No. <laughs> neurotypical people could also meet neurodivergent people halfway, and that would be perfectly fine. <laughs> um, that would actually probably be a very um fulfilling and beautiful experience for all parties involved, right? To like uh, meet halfway, that sounds like something that would really strengthen connection and have everybody feel seen and heard. But, you know. <laughs> Definitely. How have stereotypes affected your work, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that in the um, study that I actually conducted for my master's thesis and I'm, I'm publishing from now, um, we realized that like, because there isn't positive information about there, or just accurate, accurate information about autistic people, that people will work off of assumptions. We see this with the, you know, like that was a big finding from my study is that clients felt like their mental health practitioner was not educated on autism. So they were working off like assumptions. And that was often really hurtful. Um, and there's been other research out there that shows that, like, just in general, people will kind of work off of these biased ideas about autistic folks. But it really works to isolate us. Um, 
so many people have said, I was told that I couldn't be autistic. Either people who weren't diagnosed yet and were just very suspicious that this was something that they were experiencing, you know, like, hey, it really seems like this is a thing. But even people who were diagnosed, you know, I frequently have people tell me that I'm not autistic. And I'm like, bro, like, do you know what I do for a living? <laughs> like, you, you're like, you're funny, man. <laughs> like, I don't know, the gall. Um, but basically this idea of like, well, but you have relationships, you have kids, you're married, you um, have a job and you talk to your coworkers and you are able to, you know, make eye contact and engage in these social niceties. Um, and therefore, there's no way that you are autistic. And then it's like, if you are not able to do those things, or you simply refuse because you're just unmasked, then it's like, oh, because you're like ill, essentially. Uh, you know, the medical model, which is the, the popular way of conceiving of autism, looks at us as sick. Um, and that we need our autism treated in the same way that you might treat like a staph infection. Um, and it's really like, of course, it's erasure of our beautiful community and the many strengths that we have in communication, but it's just this like big source of stigma that kind of follows us. I was just curious, do you find that the people that will say that they don't believe that you're autistic do you think that they have the education or resources on autism or do you think it's just because they see this mask and have this stereotypical view of what autism is yeah I mean it's interesting like the diversity of the people who will just tell me I'm not autistic uh it spans a lot of things uh I often find that the neurotypical parents of autistic children will be like no you're not autistic because my son is autistic and he is a nonverbal five-year-old white boy and you're not that and therefore <laughs> there's no way um I also will have other autistic people um tell me that I am not autistic and um I think that, you know, that can come from a lot of like their own trauma and hurt around feeling very unseen um, or feeling like neurotypical people are trying to define them. But uh, as much as there is a lot of like beautiful connection in our community, I think that there is simultaneously a lot of um, people who have, like I said, attachment insecurities trauma in their past of relating to other people there's almost no autistic people that I have met that have felt socially accepted throughout their life and have felt safe in the communities that they're in so when we have that like strife in our community it's like okay you know theoretically you would know about this right um you're part of the community but I almost sometimes feel like people's attachment trauma is speaking louder than their ability to to kind of like reason and empathize. 
and that's part of their journey. You know, they'll get there. Yeah. I was wondering if you had any tips for neurotypical therapists, um, like what they could do to provide a more welcoming space for their autistic clients. Yeah. I mean, kind of going off the attachment front and like thinking about building the therapeutic alliance. So not a lot of folks know this, but actually the relationship you have with your therapist is the most impactful factor of whether or not therapy is going to work for you. It's um, very, very important that you feel connected to your therapist, but a lot of uh, neurotypical therapists struggle to build a connection with their neurodivergent clients. And I think a big thing always is making sure that you're seeing people for who they are and helping them to feel seen. Also, when a person comes into therapy and they're masking in session, they're not getting better. Masking is not good for you. It's linked to burnout, suicidal ideation, depression, and anxiety. So clients need to be able to feel safe being unmasked. This can mean things such as like, you know, if a person doesn't want to make eye contact with you, especially like there's many autistic people who actually have to remove one source of sensory input when they're talking about things that they're, you know, self-reflecting on, not even necessarily very charged emotional content, but I mean, I know a lot of autistic people who close their eyes when they talk, um, because it's, it just helps them. Um, that is some, that is not hurting anybody. That's gotta be okay. (laughs) You know, you gotta let people come as they are. Um, and to feel like they're able to make their own goals you might say, all right, like this person isn't living life the way that I do. But the question is, is it healthy? Is it functional? A person doesn't have to live life like everybody else. Um, And as therapists, you got to check your biases. Because even I sometimes will find myself being like, oh, that's like, I'll have like a negative reaction to something. And I'm like, wait, is that actually because this person is you know like engaging in something like harmful or maladaptive or is that just like because I have my own personal opinions and ideas (laughs) you know um so those are kind of big things that I think could be changed to help people feel more connected to their therapist and then have therapy you know go more smoothly Also, don't shut down people when they talk about their special interests so quickly. Often the most fruitful sessions I've had with somebody are when they're like talking about their special interests. And I'm like, okay, interesting. You're really into this show. And I also see how like the character in this show has similar trauma to you. I don't know if you've actually noticed that, but they do. (laughs) So like, let's actually make analogies and use like your special interest as a way of framing and understanding your experience. And that's very helpful. Usually that's like a often a big breakthrough session for people. Um, yeah, so that's actually a way in which you lean into people's strengths uh, to help them heal, you know? Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. And our time is almost about to wrap up. So I just wanted to leave the last couple of minutes. If there's 
any advice that you want to offer out to the autistic community who might be on their healing journey of uncovering and unmasking and any last words that you'd like to share? Sure. Um, I think that a thing to always keep in mind is that um, your relationship with yourself and your ability to experience self-compassion and emotionally attune with yourself is a big part of healing how you relate to other people. Um, and our brains are very like plastic. They're very like fluid and gummy and you can shape them. <laughs> Uh, at any stage in life, you can shape them. So sometimes it feels like we are almost haunted or plagued by feelings of loneliness and disconnection, and we blame it on ourselves. And we feel like because of the autism diagnosis, we will we will be alone all the time. And that's not true. Society has created systems that work against you and that kind of create that situation. Um, but all people are lovable and all people are meant for loving. And, you know, there's always, you can always change things and always find happiness and always get better. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. This interview has been so much fun and we appreciate your time and your space. I just wanted to thank you also for being here and sharing. I've learned so much from you and I'm just so grateful to share this space with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I really like appreciate your activism and this show and what it does for our community um, and just what like, you know, wonderful open-hearted listen, like listeners you are. Um, it's been great being on here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. We hope you have an awesome, magical day. Bye.